Get your gear ready. This is a Sherpa's Guide to Innovation. with another installment of A Sherpa's Guide to Innovation, a podcast dedicated to guiding you along your innovation expedition. This is Ben Tingey, your host. Will Behrman and I have the distinct pleasure of welcoming Rebecca Fogg to the podcast, Senior Research Fellow at the Clayton Christensen Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan think tank dedicated to improving the world through disruptive innovation, where Becca leads the healthcare practice. Her research focuses on business model innovation and healthcare delivery, particularly new approaches to population health management and patient-centered care. She's joining us from across the pond in foggy London town, and we're thrilled to have you on the podcast, Becca. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I am thrilled to talk to you, too. Great. Thanks. A brief note for our listeners, please subscribe to our podcast and share this episode with a friend or colleague and give us a rating and a review on iTunes. Then go look up Rebecca's outstanding research and read all of it. We particularly recommend the publication Health for Hire, Unleashing Patient Potential to Reduce Chronic Disease Costs, which she authored along with Clayton Christensen and Andrew Waldeck. And then we can provide those links to her work in the podcast show notes. But let's begin with a few questions for Becca to get to know her a little bit better, and then we'll transition into more of a Q&A format. So shall we begin? Please. Wonderful. All right, Becca, so you have had a wide-ranging career from financial services to healthcare. You've also had a, a very strong consumer focus. Talk to us about some of the major inflection points of your career and how you ultimately arrived at the Christensen Institute. Yeah, well, it's actually even broader than that because I started out in the music business and I also worked for an air ambulance. Um, I think, uh, I think the breadth is driven by the fact that I'm a very creative person and I'm also a very analytical person. And I've learned that that's a great combination of skills for problem solving and new ventures. So in terms of major inflection points, you know, rather than following the career path for a particular function or industry, I've always looked for really interesting problems to solve and ideally big visions to pin down and operationalize. Um, And how I ended up in healthcare and uh, the Christensen Institute is literally by accident. My hand was partially amputated in an explosion in my Brooklyn apartment. And I was really lucky to have top-notch care, but it was an ordeal that really gave me an extraordinary orientation to the problems in our healthcare system and just how many incredibly driven people there are trying to do good work and are really cobbled um, by the traditional business model. So when Clay asked me to write with him on the subject, um, I knew it was an incredible opportunity to make a difference that I just couldn't pass out. That's incredible. You know, I think it, it, it's interesting, though, a lot of uh, experiences that I've had in my career with people who have really been uh, inspired to try to make change in the healthcare. It originated from uh, a, a difficult or bad situation that they had with the healthcare system. So it's kind of interesting to see that trend in uh, people who are now sort of leading the charge for change and advocacy. And that's absolutely true of um, many of the people, the practitioners and the innovators that I interview as well. So it comes from a very personal experience. Mm-hmm. Well, and speaking of personal, how would you 
characterize your personal mission at the Christensen Institute? What are you after? I want to use all the skills and expertise I have and all the passion I have to improve lives. And luckily <laughs> or unluckily, you know, it's, there's much opportunity for improvement. And so, you know, what really excites me is taking the theories and showing other people who are similarly inspired how they can help frame thoughts, frame problems, raise the right questions so that they can do their best work as well. That's great. How has your consumer focus in your career uh, shaped your perspective on uh, healthcare or how has it molded your, your lens of evaluation? Oh, it's had a huge impact. Um, in terms of my perspective on healthcare, both as a patient and also as a business person, it's really given me empathy for the end user. In terms of my current work with the Christensen Institute, it's really helped me recognize just how powerful the theories of disruption and jobs to be done are, specifically in communicating the value of the consumer perspective and helping innovators get to the bottom of it. You know, for example, the theories tell us that only consumers have the power to determine whether a product is a solution or not. That's a really radical perspective if you're not really tapped into the consumer mind. Um, and the theories also tell us that material competitive advantage only comes from a company's ability to pinpoint important unmet consumer needs in the market. And, you know, all of that might be intuitive for some business leaders, you know, a career marketer, et cetera, but it's still a leap for a lot of others who think, you know, build it and they will come. And the theory can explain not just that that's not always true, or even it's rarely true, but they can explain why it's not and what innovators can do about it. Yeah, I think especially in healthcare, where at least in what I've seen in my career, and probably even worse so before that, where the production capacity, so the physicians and the hospital and the other providers are expensive and they're, uh, have you know a limited finite capacity. And so we've often tried to optimize that uh, rather than actually look at the lens 180 degrees different from the patient's perspective. So it's really fascinating to see your work, uh, which, which came through in the uh, work about Health for Hire and uh, just some of the other work that's going on in the market around what happens when you truly start from the patient perspective and the user's perspective and build up from there. So uh, yeah. that's why we got interested in talking with you. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. Yeah, it's a, it's a real, the consumer perspective is an incredibly helpful organizing principle. You know, you were talking about resource allocation. How do you, you know, when you have fixed resources, how do you decide where to allocate them? And, you know, it's infinite. You could make an argument for many, many different resources and processes to invest in. But when you think about what's going to make the most difference, um, what is going to create a solution that the market will pick up and that will lead to financial sustainability and, um, you know, from a social impact perspective, really make a difference to patients. If you start with that consumer perspective or the patient perspective, it's going to help you decide what to do and what not to do. It's going to be as helpful in determining where you shouldn't spend your efforts as where you should, rather than just trying to come up with all the pros and cons in your own head. Right. Talk to the consumer, watch the consumer, empathize yeah. with the consumer. And in today's evolving healthcare world, at least in the U.S., you know, worried about value-based care and behavior change is important. And it seems to me if you don't design around the customer, then you're not going to get the behavior change that's needed to try to promote health. Absolutely. And we, we've also discovered that 
when you can successfully identify the job and integrate around it, you drastically reduce the risk of that business model, which is something you know, we, we don't typically think of with innovation, but in a lot of ways, when you can identify that job to be done and, and build the RPPs around successfully delivering it, then what, what Clay often talks about, you're moving from correlation to causation. What, what is driving that decision? Mm-hmm. What is driving their higher decision? And for healthcare, that's critical. Yeah, well, it's it's uh, it's precision innovation as opposed to precision medicine. You know, it's it's understanding the root cause and you know dealing with that instead of the symptoms. I have loved learning more about the ways that you're applying the theory in your system. It's incredibly informative. So I look forward to hearing more. Precision innovation. I'm writing that down. Uh oh, <laughs> recording a term. <laughs> All right. So, you know, Becca, there's a great deal of conversation around disruption in healthcare, like this podcast. Mm-hmm. It, it seems like, you know, obviously it's a hard industry to disrupt. So where and how is it most likely to be disrupted, do you see? And sort of what's mm-hmm. different now as opposed to maybe five years ago when you joined the Christensen Institute? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. You know, as you know, the industry is multifaceted. So, you know, there are different sectors in it. There's devices, there's pharma. I focus on healthcare delivery. And, you know, one of the reasons that one of many reasons why it's been so difficult to disrupt is that consumers aren't the primary payers for care. You've got all these intermediaries, you've got insurers, you've got self-insured employers, uh, you've got benefits managers that tell the employers what kinds of benefits they should be offering. So you have all these parties that are influencing the development of, of that care product. But funnily enough, the end users, the, the consumers, the patients have very little voice. They just haven't had as much influence in how care is delivered as they should have. But by the time I started with the Institute in 2014, that was beginning to change with implementation of the Affordable Care Act. And today, whether you're for or against the law, it's clear that it has dramatically changed the public's perception of what healthcare could be and should be. And consumers are communicating loud and clear that they don't want to lose what they've gained. So innovators who listen closely and understand how to translate the unmet demands that consumers are communicating about, or even, you know, the demand that has started to get met that they are valuing. Innovators who who can translate that into solutions by consumers' definitions are going to have a competitive edge and a shot at really making difference in a lot of lives. Do you see um, instances or maybe even trends in where incentives are becoming more aligned between providers, payers, and payers being both categories of both insurers and, uh, and large companies? And those two and the consumer as well. Because it seems to me that in the past, one of the difficulties that you alluded to was you've got different incentives and they're misaligned. Mm-hmm. Do you mm-hmm. see more alignment of those incentives? Do you see pockets of hope? What, what do you see in that regard? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot more alignment across incentives. So broadly based, if we were to say consumers' interests are better, more affordable care, better could mean in in a clinical sense, but ultimately it means care that maximizes their long-term health and helps them lead the kind of life that they want to lead, however they define that. Care that helps them overcome barriers to self-management and to doing the jobs that they want to do. So 
you know, in terms of that interest, traditionally the the healthcare industry hasn't hasn't had the I would say the incentives built into the business model to address that. I fundamentally believe that people who get into healthcare delivery are doing it because they want to help patients. Um, I I don't doubt that for a second, but the fee-for-service business model continually pulls them in a direction of delivering volume over value. That's what it has rewarded in the past. Um, Insurers in the past have been able to protect um, margins by cherry-picking customers and focusing on health customers, etc. So there have been a lot of aspects of the industry that have uh, been constraints for people who are trying to help consumers maximize their health. And that's beginning to change for a variety of reasons. You know, some of it is law and policy that has changed what insurers are able to do. Some of it is more investment in innovative models, accountable care organizations, new payment models that reward keeping patients healthy as opposed to just rewarding transaction volume. So I think, you know, between sort of negative incentives like um, reducing margins and a, a you know, traditional healthcare delivery business model that isn't just isn't working for anyone anymore. And more positive incentives like investment in new care models and things like that. Finally, you know, there are the the pieces of the business model being put together that are allowing professionals to deliver more of what consumers have wanted in the first place. It's still a very long road to head as we know, but I think that the building blocks are there. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that because uh, in a lot of the research that we do, at least, we find that uh, very few, if any of our customers, want what we have to offer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. what, what they want is to get on with their life and to live a life yeah. outside yeah. of our need. And they just borrow us when they need to get back to their life. So it's just kind of interesting. I, keeping that in mind <laughs> really changes the perspective of what we're here to accomplish. Yeah. Well, one of the ways I've thought about that is you know, nobody wants a joint replacement. If they did, you know, hospitals would have wish lists and you'd go and and they would say, would you like to save this procedure for your future, you know, for future use? And um, nobody wants that. They want the life, you know, that they can have if they can run around with their kids or, you know, play sports with their friends. Moving along on this uh, topic a little bit, too, it seems like uh, there's a lot of talk about whether an innovation is disruptive whether it's sustaining or whether it's efficiency. You know, those are the three main, main goals, main areas. Why, why do you think it matters if we understand something is within one of these categories or, or does it really matter? I think it's a great question and I think it does matter. Both sustaining and disruptive innovations are important. The reason we want to understand the difference between them is because they can accomplish different things. And if you don't understand cause and effect, then you're going to pick the wrong strategy to accomplish your goal. So sustaining innovation is really important because it makes good products better. Um, So in the case of care delivery, you really want to, you really want to understand how care processes are performing and whether they are having the maximum positive impact possible on, um, on a treatment or on the customer experience or on the affordability of something. But in terms of disruption, you know, that is how you transform an entire industry. And that's how you address an important unmet need in the marketplace. And 
if you think sustaining is innovation is going to do that, it's not. So it's important to understand what you're trying to accomplish. Are you making something better or are you trying to address an unmet need in the market? And when you understand that, then you know, and you understand the difference between sustaining and disruptive innovation, you have a blueprint of the strategy that you need to follow. Um, it's not quite that easy in the end, <laughs> but you, you understand cause and effect and you can build an innovation strategy accordingly. Absolutely. And it, it seems that so much of what we see or read about being touted as transformative is really mm-hmm. masked sustaining innovations that exactly. doesn't really have the transformative power that yep. hoping it will have. And, and that leads me to, to, to a question. So I've, uh, alongside my, my colleague Ann Summers Hogg, we spend a lot of our time scanning for disruption. Mm-hmm. Um, we've really enjoyed your blog series, The Innovators Worth Watching, where you profile some of these companies that have disruptive potential. Terrific. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about your research process and how you evaluate for disruptive potential? We'd love to, <laughs> to learn how you, how you do that. Sure. Um, well, gosh, uh, first of all, I have to say um, I really enjoyed hearing about your scanning efforts. Um, you guys were kind enough to spend some time with me a couple of weeks ago, and it's just wonderful to be out there um, learning about how people are using the theory to uh, improve their businesses. In terms of how do I look at the market, you know, I, I will say, you know, an innovator is worth watching in my mind if they are trying to address the unmet needs that we are very concerned about. So, you know, we're a social impact uh, organization. You know, we want care to get better and more affordable for, for everyone. We want a social outcome for all of this work. So I'm looking at innovators who I think for one reason or another might be able to chip away at that problem. And um, then there's a, a second, you know, lens I apply to that in a sense. Is it an innovator that I think has the potential to be disruptive probably because they are looking at an innovative business model. So they haven't just come up with a product that they think can be transformative. Um, they haven't just said, oh, hey, chronic disease management is a you know huge unmet need in the market, or rather people are suffering with chronic disease and they're not getting sufficient support. So let's attack that. They understand that they can't just do that within a traditional business model. So that's probably the the most important next criteria. And then we just look at them. They might be disruptive or they might not be disruptive. But what I think you've probably seen in some of the the ones that um, I've written about, even if we're not entirely sure they're going to be disruptive, a lot of times they are solving important parts of the problem and they are doing things that other organizations could learn from. They're doing things that could make good care better. So they're worth watching for all of those reasons. Only some of them will end up being disruptive, but I'm, I'm usually happy to see all of them out there. Absolutely. It's always encouraging. I'm thinking a little more about what you said, that it's, it's not just that they have good intentions. It's not just that they have a product that's in the market 
making some money, it has to be something unique about their business model that is that disruptive potential. What are the aspects of the business model that you try to identify and, and, and home in on to try to evaluate its disruptive potential? Yeah, that's part of what we're learning through our research. I would say two really critical ones are the profit formula and key processes. So, you know, if you think about a business model as being uh, resources, processes, and priorities, or resources, processes, value proposition, and uh, profit formula, you know, it's how those all interact together to enable people in that firm to uh, address the unmet need together. So I think processes in profit formula are particularly important because profit formula is is a huge enabler or constraint depending on whether it matches your goals or not. So again, the classic example, fee-for-service, ultimately it's going to reward about, you know, volume. And so anybody who is trying to do something that might end up cutting down volume, like keeping people out of the hospital or helping them to manage their own care is just working against the wind in a fee-for-service model. So no matter how hard they try, they're going to hit the wall at some point. If they're working in, you know, under capitation or some kind of bundled arrangement um, or in an ACO, the wind is more at their backs. It's still not an easy road, but if they're working in an organization that does better financially when you help you know, address these long-term issues, keep patients out of the hospital, et cetera, then that's going to be an enabler. Another enabler is processes. So uh, one of my, you know, actually my core research focus is organizations that are implicitly taking what I would call a jobs-based approach to care. So they are starting with this understanding that circumstances influence what patients can and can't do, what they need, their, their broader health status. And an organization that is going to try to address their needs in a job-based way, they have to understand what the job to be done is. So how do they do that? What are the aspects of their business model that allow them to understand the patient's broader determinants of health? You know, why they can or can't cook a healthy meal at home, whether they can or can't pick up their meds sometime, et cetera. So what are those what are those processes? In some of the organizations that I've studied, the processes might be, it might start with a motivational interview at the beginning of the process, you know, just learning to, you know, asking questions about what the patient cares about. Other processes might be um, protected time for the staff to review results, you know, care results. Other processes might be a morning huddle where the multidisciplinary team gets together and talks about every facet that they particularly know about that patient's life and and do problem solving and try to understand why the patient is behaving in a certain way and what they can do to help. So I think it's every aspect of the business model can be an enabler or an inhibitor. uh, But I think that profit formula and processes together are very often some of the distinguishing factors. So I'm, I'm looking for those. And I'd really like to study, you know, processes in particular and figure out of the people who are doing, seem to be doing a really good job of it. What are those plot processes, implicit and explicit? I love that. That's great. Especially the feedback loop of that continuous customer discovery. And just as a reminder to our listeners about the theories is that as an incumbent, if somebody comes in with a different 
profit formula and key processes to achieve that. That's what makes it difficult for the incumbent then to be able to respond because mm-hmm. they're not positioned and built in a way to respond to that disruption. And that's what makes it difficult. That's why rebar was taken away from the traditional mills. Yeah. I mean, and that's why I say compassion is not a sustainable business model. You can care as much as you want. You can work as hard as you want, but if your firm is being kept afloat by doing something other than what it is that you're trying to do, you're in an uphill battle. You know, looking, uh, th- thinking about taking this to a practical example and reflecting back then on your health for hire publication that we've talked about Mm -hmm. before what surprised you the most when you did that research that's a good question (laughs) you know i looked at i looked at organizations in the u.s and also in the uk and i'm i'm part of the uk health system over here so it's absolutely fascinating to be part of that i think one of the things that surprised me was just how cultural healthcare is meaning how as providers as consumers as payers patients users we have expectations about what's possible about what is appropriate and those really inform what business models emerge you know if you look at something like social prescribing um, that's a that's a uk term but it's when a physician is able to prescribe to a patient an activity that they think would be beneficial to that person. So for instance, um, you know, rather than just prescribing antidepressants or even prescribing any drugs at all, they might prescribe to a patient who's you know, suffering from isolation and loneliness and depression, um, a knitting group or a fishing group, <laughs> and they will connect them with these, you know, these um, opportunities or in the States, social prescribing um, isn't often called that, but it's, it's more often taking the form of being able to prescribe healthy food and they can go to a, a healthy food bank if they live in a food desert, things like that. You know, it was surprising to see, I think, how diverse those efforts were and how many are really springing up all over you know, the U.S. and also in the U.K., and that was really encouraging. And it was surprising to see how people's expectations about what was and wasn't possible was, you know, inhibiting and enabling those efforts. It was also surprising, I think, how, and encouraging and discouraging at the same time, how disparate those efforts seem to be in some cases. Um, you know, there are organizations both over here and in the States that have been doing some of these things very successfully for 30 years or more. And yet it seems to be so difficult for a well-established, you know, successful practice in a particular city to be doing the same thing. I, I think what was surprising, you know, on an emotional level, on an intellectual level, was just how, you know, seeing all of the fragmentation that we know exists in the healthcare, seeing the same fragmentation in innovation and all of that, it was surprising and then it wasn't surprising. Uh, But also what was encouraging was just to see how much grassroots effort there was and how many good precedents and examples there were out there when you really started to look and you really started to frame it. I think using jobs theory, using disruption theory, you know, being able to see that, see the trends. So that was a very long answer and there was a lot in there, but, um, you know, it was, it was fascinating research and um, we learned a lot. And I hope that what we were able to glean from it and articulate in the paper will help a lot of people do their work. 
I think so. I think it's a, it's an important framework. Like you said, it helps kind of guide the thinking about what if and what can be. Mm-hmm. Thinking a little bit more about that too is since the publication of that, what's changed or what, what do you think has been most strongly reinforced in your research? Have, have you seen changes since then? Are you encouraged or is it just kind of, well, if I did it again today, I'd probably see the same thing. I'm tremendously encouraged. You know, I see just in the last five years, I see a proliferation of, you know, these, um, what I call implicitly jobs-based models. A lot of it is happening in capitated primary care. So the Ioras of the world, Oak Street Health, ChenMed has been doing that for 30 years, but now I'm seeing more models that are expanding really quickly into, you know, new markets and new states. Conventional wisdom 10 years ago was that healthcare is so local that it can't cross boundaries very well, but you've got these models that are now operating in multiple states. So I find it tremendously encouraging that something that has changed and, you know, what's happening alongside it is that consumers are beginning to be understand and expect that and, you know, where, where their voice can be heard more loudly, that is going to help. It's not, you know, healthcare is very complex, so that's not going to be enough on its own. But I think, you know, you have more and more consumer advocates, provider advocates. Another thing that's changed is the insurers are now leading the way in this respect as well. So you've got insurers like Aetna and Humana who are partnering with these innovative primary care models and adjusting payment models so that these guys can do their best work. And you've got new partnerships. So you've got tech giants um, coming from outside the industry, you know, haven't that don't have their roots in the industry getting into this game. So I think just in the last five years, it's become tremendously exciting. People have been predicting things like this are possible for decades, but it just shows you how long it can take, but how much it can accelerate in a short period of time after you know, after seemingly no activity in a very short period of time, um, what remains to be seen is, are they going to be able to crack it? Are they going to be able to do it? Are they really going to be able to be sustainable? I'm on the edge of my seat. Yeah, I feel like we're dealing with some of the same questions that we had in the late 90s, but we actually have solutions now. Yeah, yeah. And a big difference is from the late 90s, right, the, the HMO model was... Um, you know, recognized that costs had to be part of the, the equation, but um, they weren't they weren't soldering um, costs and quality together, and you know they weren't looking at that unmet need for long term health. So I do think that there is a big difference between you know what's happening now and what was happening in the late nineties. So I'm hopeful, um, but you know we can't be complacent. You know, this has to be, you know, this has to be a very urgently felt need that we're addressing and we have to have a lot of staying power. Absolutely. Well, Becca, what's next on the horizon for your research? What can we expect from, uh, from you in the next little bit? Ah, well, I'm very excited. Um, I think this year we'll see publication of one, possibly two, maybe maybe three papers. Um, so two of the three are studying health systems in, in detail, in some great detail. One of them is an incumbent system. And, you know, so that's exciting to see, you know, how are incumbents recognizing these needs, addressing them, different kinds of innovation that they're doing. And I think that's, that's very instructive because we have to, you know, we can't just start 
brand new. You can't blow up a system and just start fresh. Um, So, you know, we want to understand what incumbents are doing um, to recognize new you know, needs in their population. And then another one is, uh, I hope I can say this, <laughs> um, is, you know, how can we take what we're learning and apply it um, to medical education? So how can we take these theories and distribute this knowledge and this terrific tool even more broadly than just, you know, the business leaders and the innovators. I'm very excited about that. And we'll see how fast we can write. (laughs) That's very exciting because I know that the Christensen Institute does a lot of research on particularly higher education. And so that's Mm -hmm. a cool blend of disciplines um, in your your research fields. That's very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And and in fact, there are a lot of parallels between um, the education world and the healthcare world because both of them have a commercial element, but they are also social goods. So we do talk a lot about, um, you know, the impact of policy and the the tricky issues that arise when the end user uh, in the education case being the student and the payer, which, you know, could be the government or an insurer, et cetera, are not the same. Yeah, exactly. Well, Becca and, and, and Will, as, as the Brits say, this has been a positively brilliant conversation. Uh, <laughs> Becca, thank you so much for your many contributions to the field of healthcare and disruptive innovation research. We so appreciate your time today. Yeah, we really appreciate your ability to help us translate the theories into practice and, and sort of the co-learning that we've been able to share through this podcast and through our experiences together. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for having me and thank you for taking those theories out in the world and doing what we hope people will do with them. And uh, I look forward to a continuing, um, continuing association. Absolutely. Well, that's a wrap. This is Ben Tingey. Thanks for listening, everybody. And please join us next time for a very special guest, one of the newest teammates at Atrium Health. Take care, everybody. I get to talk six more hours. Thanks. I get to thank you so much. I, I, that was a lot of fun and um, boy, I admire what you're doing. You like the whole podcast circuit is a different thing, you know? (laughs)